Yeah, and we hear, hey, I wrote this content by myself. That's the bar that we're trying to reach right now. Like, if you wrote the content by yourself, you deserve to rank. That's such a low bar. We could do better than that. How about creating some amazing content that you got a whole team on, that you went out and interviewed somebody, or you made a tool, or you got some custom graphic work. But yeah, we've lowered the bar on what people think is supposed to work. Hi, and welcome to the Optimize Podcast. My name is Nate Matherson, and I'm your host. On this weekly podcast, we sit down with some of the smartest minds in content marketing and SEO. Our goal is to give you perspective and insights on what's moving the needle in organic search. Today, I'm thrilled to sit down with Cyrus Shepard. Cyrus is one of my favorite follows and one of the best in SEO. Cyrus is also the founder of Zippy SEO. Today's episode is jam-packed. Cyrus and I go deep on Google's ranking factors, SEO heists, AI-generated content, algorithm updates, and so much more. This week's episode of the Optimize Podcast is brought to you by Positional. My name's Nate, and I'm one of the co-founders of Positional. We've been working on Positional for about 10 months, and we've built a handful of what I think are pretty awesome tools, including we've launched Content Analytics. Content Analytics is kind of like a heat mapping tool, but for a content marketing and SEO team. We provide really granular insights into where users are dropping off within your pages. And we've actually just launched a couple of new capabilities too. We've launched click mapping and click tracking to give you better insights into where your users are clicking and converting. And we've also launched a more general heat mapping view too, alongside our read maps. We'd love for you to check out our entire tool set at positional.com. Cyrus, thank you so much for coming on the Optimize podcast. Hi, Nate. Thanks for having me. Happy uh, to be here and talk about some of these uh, burning questions you have. I've got some burning questions, and I know we're going to get a little controversial in this episode. So I've been looking forward to this one all week. And the first question I ask all of our guests is, how did you get into the world of content marketing and SEO? Yeah, sure. I've, I've told this story a few times, but I got into content marketing like a lot of people, uh, taking, taking us back to the year like 2009. I was waiting tables. I didn't want to wait tables anymore. And we had just moved to a new town and the economy wasn't too good. I got a job. I worked there three days and I hated it at this restaurant. And my wife picked me up at midnight after a long shift and I got in the car and I said, hey, look, I know we need this job, but I'm going to quit and I'm going to try to make a living online. And I, I seriously sat down with a book, a physical book on HTML, and I learned how to make websites. And then when I was done, I was like, great, how do I market this? And that's when I discovered, you know, SEO and I, learning curve, just like everybody else. And then eventually I kind of got okay at it. I started taking clients. Uh, and then within a couple of years, I was working at company called SEO Moz, which turned into Moz. I was quickly promoted to lead SEO of the company way before I was ready. Uh, and I was, you know, being on stage, talking about things, responsible for the SEO of this, you know, large site. Everybody was watching every move that uh, we made. And it was just it was just trial by fire. And that's how I started with uh, SEO and content marketing and uh, growing Moz during during its heyday. And, and here we are today. I'm veering from the outline already, um, but I'm so curious, like what happened to Moz? Like it seemed like when I was first starting in SEO as like the SEO tool, was it that just like other tools came out that were maybe a little bit better or was there something kind of like structure, structurally that happened that you know led to, I don't want to say the demise of Moz, but at least like the drop in Moz. I'm going to be uh, very diplomatic in this answer. I, I have a lot of 
great friends who still work at Moz. I, I have a lot of uh, affection for the company. But, you know, Moz struggled in the late um, the late teens. Uh, just, you know, SEMrush employs hundreds, hundreds of engineers. Labor's a little cheaper for them. We were paying Seattle uh, top engineer price. It was a little harder to move fast in that way. Uh, Dimitri over at AREF genius guy uh, running the company. So uh, some of the other companies were able to move a little faster. Uh, and then Rand Fishkin left in 2018, the founder. And then in more recent years, it was bought out by a corporate public company. I still have a lot of affection for the company, but there were structural changes. There were leadership changes, still doing a lot of good things. There's still a lot of good research coming out of Moz, but yeah. A lot of things happened. I do uh, want to start with algorithm updates because, you know, 2023, it was a pretty volatile year. You know, things have been volatile for a while, but it feels like 2023 was a year where everyone was like complaining about it, maybe more than usual. What do you make of like the helpful content update and like all of the updates that happened in the second half of 2023? Yeah, it, it's interesting. And, and to your point, I'm wondering how how real the impact was because we had two things kind of really happen in the last year. One was all the changes that took place on Twitter and X and the rise of, you know, niche sites um, and some of the more, you know, the affiliate, the affiliate content space really became loud on social media. And those sites took off. It, it's, it's the era of, you know, starting your own business and trying to get rich online. And some of the more unsavory aspects of that also took off as well. And that's exactly what these these up content updates are hitting. That you know the helpful content updates, the thinner affiliate sites, things like that. Google is always you know an up and down whack a mole where sort of lower content sites rise, new tactics, and then they whack it down. And it gets better for a while, and it just seems like this year the waves are a little higher and lower. And uh, I don't know how much of it is real and how much is just social media perception, but I think there is a lot of it that is real and. Uh, it's getting harder for Google to keep up. I started my career in the affiliate SEO space. That's where I spent like the first six, seven years of my career um, doing lead generation for consumer financial products, largely like loans as well as insurance products. You know, back in like 2014, 2015, it was competitive, but like today it feels like there's just so many more competitors and also a lot of competition too from like traditional publishers, sites like Forbes and CNBC and US News. My next question is, is affiliate SEO dying? No, but it is getting harder. It's, you know, I, I think if you look at the SERPs, they're just filled with affiliate content, top to bottom, and everybody's getting in on it and people are still coming in. So I, I don't think it's dying at all. I think Google likes affiliate sites, to be honest, because it, it provides them with billions of pages of content. Uh, it's just a matter of, you know, succeeding at it and uh, separating the chaff from the wheat. I think that's a saying. Definitely still a thing, just harder to compete. Yeah, I do find it funny when, um, you know, affiliate SEO is is glamorized on, on platforms like X. I thought it was incredibly stressful, like, you know, constant like changes in traffic yeah. and algorithm updates. And you were we were always trying to keep up. It felt like we were always kind of behind. But I guess like it would depend on like you know, how big your team was and how big the site was. Let me go down a tangent for a second. Yeah, let's do it. The golden days of Moz, you know, it felt like we were inventing the internet all over again. And there was there was kind of this ethos uh, that we always talked about, about, you know, making the internet better, creating great experiences, linkable assets. And I think we've got a little bit away from that, uh, the discourse has in the past few years. And now it's about what works and what can you get away with. And I think... Uh, people have optimized some of these tactics to death. And that's what 
Google is dealing with. But I would love to see a return to, you know, not what works, but what is the best experience we can deliver for people. And I think so many affiliates that are suffering right now are more focused on what they can get away with. And that's why we're seeing some of the suffering that we're seeing. Yeah. A lot of the sites that got whacked probably should have been whacked. You know, they weren't actually adding anything new to the internet. They weren't actually maybe reviewing the products that they were reviewing. Yeah. And we hear, Hey, I wrote this content by myself. That's the, that's the bar that we're trying to reach right now. Like if you wrote the content by yourself, you deserve to rank. That's such a low bar. We could do better than that. Uh, how about creating some amazing content, uh, that you got a whole team on that you went out and interviewed somebody or you made a tool or you got some custom graphic work. Yeah. But yeah, we've lowered the bar on what people think is supposed to work. Would you say that the bar in terms of content quality or that unique helpfulness that you're describing is, is maybe the most important that it's ever been? It could be. That's an interesting question. On the other hand, we've also, we see the same type of content rank again and again, because we've done such a good job, you know, as SEOs figuring out what works in Google and what they reward. So there's this conflicting, you know, dynamic where we know what works. And so everybody produces sort of the same content and people are scared to step outside of that when they're, you know, investing dollars and time and energy. So, but I, I'm more of the mind that I like to create things that are unique and valuable and stand out. I totally agree. And speaking of getting away with things or, or trying to get away with things, there was a, a pretty uh, popular website, at least in the Excel formula space called uh, Causal. And uh, you might remember like Jake Ward uh, from Byword. Yeah. We've you know invited him on this podcast. It doesn't sound like he's coming on, but I do want to talk about it with you. You know, he posted on, on Twitter on X about the SEO heist. Uh, where he essentially used programmatic SEO and AI generated content to like rank for a very, very large number of keywords and to create a lot of content very, very quickly in like the Excel formula space. And it was working incredibly well for this website causal, uh, but then it didn't, it, it kind of imploded and is now down to something that's close to zero. What do you make of the SEO heist? Do you have any thoughts here? Well, one, no, no shade on Jake or tweeting that out. I mean, I, I'm sure his business is doing great and he accomplished what he wanted to. It amazes me that that site still has the content up on their site because it seems like it's the main business is suffering now because of it. If it were me, I would have, you know, gotten rid of all of it. I would have checked for manual penalties in Google Search Console, tried to get some of my rankings back. But in truth, I think the only mistake made in that whole episode was tweeting about it so well. Uh, Google would probably would not have punished them if uh, they weren't embarrassed. And that's the truth. And we see other sites, people are after that, people have been messaging me all the time with sites that are doing very similar things and killing it with uh, rankings and traffic because they're just pumping out thousands of articles. And they already have some, you know, these are generally sites that may already have some existing domain authority, uh, some existing trust. I, I tweeted about one this week. I can't remember the exact name of it, but it was a similar type of formula site. I think we're going to see more and more of these sites being rewarded and uh, getting away with it, as, as we say. Yeah, I, re I saw that recent tweet from you uh, about a very similar site to Causal that had a very similar strategy. I'm creating like many of these Excel formula pages with AI. And they actually added a disclaimer to their pages, which basically said, don't trust us. Like take all of our content with a grain of salt. It's AI generated. Like, should we be doing that if we're creating these pages with AI? Maybe. I mean, probably, especially because those pages that I tweeted about the other day, 
they were not that great. Uh, they didn't look like they were highly reviewed. There were, you know, formatting errors and everything else like that. A lot of people in the comments were saying, oh, this, this site probably has terrible engagement metrics, but I wouldn't assume that. Uh, I, they may have great engagement metrics, like maybe people are curious about the AI generated article and, uh, and what the answers are. I think it's important to realize that the next uh, chat GTP is releasing the next version pretty soon, and it's supposed to be degrees better than the, the current version. We're in such early days of AI content, it's going to get better. It's going to be indistinguishable from human written content very soon. Uh, and I think we just have to accept that and live with that reality. But in the meantime, I think we have, you know, a, I think we have this one or two year window where things are just going to be crazy wild in the SERPs and people are going to be publishing thousands or millions of pages. Uh, mom and pops aren't going to know what to do. Corporations are going to get on it. CNN's going to figure out that they can get away with it because they have such a big domain authority. You know, just like they publish coupons on a subdomain, they're going to be publishing AI content all over the place because there's money there and it's going to be a wild time. Yeah. Forbes has got to be the first one that's going to figure this out. Oh, yeah. And, you know, final question here, because I, I will move on. Do you think that causal like got a manual penalty that is confirmed? Do you think it's not confirmed? But I mean, it was uh, if you looked at the third party tools, they dropped pretty rapidly, but they were only dropping. They only didn't drop instantly because it takes some time to chew through all the keywords that they have to process. It seemed like their drop happened within 48 hours. And it was you just don't see something drop to zero like that naturally. And we haven't seen it happen to other AI generated sites. So I'm pretty sure someone at Google put their put their finger on the button and, and nuke the site. <laughs> I wonder how many like if at all, if there are any uh, like layers of approval at Google, like can one person at Google just nuke a site or does it have to go through like a series of reviews? Do you think? I'm sure in that instance, uh, I, and I don't have any insider knowledge of this. I'm sure in that instance, there was a high level discussion. Uh, among the search quality team and uh, the the PR teams and all that. Yeah. Well, you know, best of luck to uh, to Jake and uh, and the causal team. Yeah. And Jake, if you're listening, I know I've talked a lot about your site and I've all maybe made fun of it uh, of casual a little bit. No hard feelings. You're doing what you're doing. I do want to get out of this conversation. Jake, I'm sure is a great dude. So I want to get to your Twitter because you've got a lot of awesome tweets. And for all of our listeners who are not already following Cyrus, you should be. And we will include a link to his Twitter in the show notes. And I saw your recent tweet about bypassing Google's site diversity system. And you called out apartments.com as having, you know, five out of the top 10 SERPs for a given query. And so my first question is, what is Google's site diversity system? Yeah, site diversity system, it's one of their confirmed ranking systems uh, that they published. It simply ensures that in most circumstances, no more than two results from the same domain will show up in any given uh, search results in the top 10. So you shouldn't see, a, uh, in this case, apartments.com, you wouldn't expect them to see more than two, two times in the top 10. But sometimes, if, it, if you have a keyword rich domain and the keyword is in the search query, Google will sometimes start populating with multiple results. Is there anything that apartments.com is doing correctly here? Or is there anything we can do to beat the site diversity system for certain search? Yeah. So in this, they, they just lucked out because they just have that sweet, sweet domain name. Because sometimes, sometimes you know, Google isn't quite sure if it's, uh, if the, 
keyword query has navigational intent. Like, are they trying to go to apartments.com? So they, they might show us a few more in that in that circumstance. And I think they just squeaked by. They just got they just lucked out. And right now, the it's it's leaning Google system is favoring them a little bit more for navigational queries when there's clearly no navigational intent. So, and I think some people in the in the SEO community are tweeting about this. They're talking about it, and I think we might see an adjustment in the future from Google side just to scale that back a little bit. Yeah, and we will link over to your webpage in the show notes too, uh, zippy.com. And I know on zippy.com, you've got the free ranking factors newsletter, which everyone should subscribe to. And I do want to talk about ranking factors. I know you've got a few opinions here heading into 2024. What are two or three of the you know, ranking factors you care most about or you're paying most attention to? There's a couple of different things. One, we learned so much from the U.S. antitrust trial that's currently taking place. I think they, they've wrapped up arguments. We're going to wait for a judgment uh, this year. So many documents released, especially around user interaction signals. The ironic thing is Google has said for years, hey, don't chase the algorithm, chase users. Because our, our systems are designed to chase the users. But what we didn't realize the whole time was how much data Google was tracking from user clicks uh, through Chrome, you know, to rank results and even not even rank results, but understand web pages that they don't really understand web pages as much as we think they do. And they're relying on millions and millions of clicks to get those relevancy signals. So I think there's been a few people in the SEO community that have always said, you know, go after users, go after engagement provide the best answer you can. But now we realize how much that's true because Google is built on a house of cards. They don't really understand anything. They're just looking at what people do in search results and then ranking the, the sites that do better, they rank those higher. Uh, so that's that's one thing. The other thing, and maybe, maybe you have some other questions about this uh, in the show is in 2023, I started working as a Google quality rater. Google employs, you know, lots of quality raters around the world. And I just started rating websites, uh, getting paid $15 an hour. It's, it's a horrible job. And that has changed my perception of ranking factors as well, too. How people perceive your site, just looking at your site as an actual user. And it's hard to define those things as ranking factors. But when I do that, I've applied some of these principles to my own sites and I've seen my rankings go up. So those two things, it's all about user interaction signals, whether it's a human quality rater or someone using your site. Those are the kind of the soft, squishy factors that I'm focused on now. I have many follow-up questions. The first is, wait, so you are a quality rater for Google? Like, how does one become a quality rater? Do you just need to, like, apply online somewhere? Yep. So I was reading about how Google uses quality rater metrics in their machine learning algorithm, something they don't talk a lot about online. I should do this. I should become a quality rater. I don't think I'm going to learn any secrets, but I, I can at least see how the data is gathered. I'm like, are they going to hire me? I mean, I don't know if you know my reputation, but sometimes Googlers don't like me that much because I'm, I'm highly critical of Google. So I applied and I got through and then I got to the background check. I'm like, oh no, they're going to do a background check. So I pushed the button and then five minutes later, I got an email saying, you are not on a terror watch list. I'm like, oh yes. I'm good. There's a lot of testing. Uh, it took me two weeks to pass all the tests. They were much harder than I thought they were going to be, uh, which kind of bruised my ego as an SEO a little bit. But yep. Uh, and they hired me. And as long as I keep minimum hours, which is not very much, uh, they keep me on the payroll. So what are like one or two of those things you've learned as a as a Google quality rater that maybe you're taking away for your own websites? So there's certain things I'm not allowed to say because I'm currently employed and there's an NDA and all that stuff. But one of the things that came out in that trial I just talked about that uh, a lot of people don't realize is that quality raters evaluate your site 100% using phones. 
So I can't go into the specifics of how that goes, but when you're when quality raters visit your site, they are always looking at it on a mobile device nearly 100% of the time. And we've always say mobile first, but that's how we do it. I, in fact, in my consulting services, we offer a service where we do like a quality rater evaluation of your site. And we, we do everything on mobile, um, which is sometimes a pain, but that's one thing. Always evaluate your site on mobile. If you go through the quality rater guidelines, which which Google uses, they're, they're the same, you know, working as a quality rater. A lot of it, there's certain things in there that you just don't think about. Like there's a big section in quality rater guidelines on the page title. Uh, okay, well, a lot of people don't pay attention to that. Or your reputation, website reputation. There's a whole process for researching a site's reputation uh, that is part of the quality rater's job. So that's something that you know I certainly include now in every audit that I do that I probably wouldn't have before because these these things become more important. This is so interesting. We could film a whole episode on like <laughs> what it's like to be a Google quality rater. It's honestly really boring. It's a tedious job. It's low pay. It's uh, you you have to be fairly intelligent to do it. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a really boring job. It's really hard to keep my hours up. Yeah, you know we should write an article on like best work from home jobs 2024. And yeah, that's not it. <laughs> become an affiliate marketer. Don't become a quality rater. We're about halfway into this episode of the Optimized Podcast, and I just want to bring you a special note from one of our sponsors, that being Positional. If you're anything like me, you probably love internal linking, but you probably don't do enough of it. And it probably takes a ton of time to find missing internal links throughout your old pieces of content and then internally link the new pieces you create. And that's why we built internals. We'd love for you to check out our internal linking tool set at positional.com. And that was a word from our sponsors. Now back to this episode. I do want to like take a step back though to um you know those user experience uh, signals that you were describing. I've always been a big believer in this, and I, it was really interesting to see like that this come to light with like you said the antitrust trial and hearings and discovery. When you talk about these signals, like are, are there certain signals we can track? Like are they things like bounce rate or scroll depth or time on page? Is that what you're talking about here? Yeah, it's really, really, really tricky. I look at all those things, but it's such a noise signal. Really, what we think, what a lot of people think Google is tracking, which they talk about in some of their patents, is are people returning to Google search results and looking at other other results? Or are they just abandoning, they're fin- they got the answer from your website, and now they're on to something else. And that's almost impossible to track. Here's an example. After working as a quality rater, I realized I wanted to put on, on my web pages, I wanted to put the answer closer to the top. So this is the opposite of like recipe sites, you know, when they put the answer at the bottom because they're ad supported, they want to get all those clicks and impressions. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, I'm going to put the answer right at the top, first few paragraphs. And if people who are more interested, they can scroll and read. I experimented with this on a few posts. What I saw was my engagement metrics go down. My bounce rate went up. My time on site went down. I, I, normally I'd say, oh, I'm doing terrible here. But as soon as I did that, my rankings went up almost doubled on these pages because people were getting the answers they were looking for and presumably ending their search journey. So it's it's paradoxical what you want to happen there. For most of my results, I don't think any of our the metrics we track are good, but I do like tracking time on page and number of pages visited. Generally, those kind of correlate in the same direction, but again, they're they're really imperfect metrics. And have the top ranking factors changed over the last few years or since you've been doing SEO? 
I don't think so. I, you know, the, the thing about, you know, links and content relevancy, user engagement metrics, I think those have stayed incredibly stable over time. Google has a solid product. They make billions of dollars on it a year. They don't like to futz with it too much. So I think that the basic ranking factors have generally stayed the same. It's on the edges that, you know, Google likes to uh, make adjustments such as, you know, in the last year was the helpful content update. Do people have real experience? Things like that. I don't, you know, who knows how they're looking for that. But yeah, I think it's on the edges. Google makes small changes and it has big impact in the serves. And a last question on user experience metrics. You talked about like, you know, possibly improving your intro sections to, to maybe better hit that search intent or better answer that question faster in your pages. Should we be actively coming back to like our existing portfolio of content and, and trying to figure out if we can improve it or not? Yeah, I mean... My no, normal technique and the advice I, you know, work with clients is you should probably be updating, at least looking and touching all your content every couple of years. If it's if it's important, two years is the maximum amount of time you want to let a piece of content go if it if it's important to you. So when you do that, uh, that's a good that process of looking at your answers, user experience, that would be a good process to put in your content update process. And you mentioned backlinks. How important are backlinks in 2024? Hugely. We don't talk about them a lot anymore, but you know, and I think Google has done a very good job of PRing, trying to de-emphasize the importance of backlinks. But every study we look at, uh, Semrush just did a, a study recently looking at correlation data, and it is the same as it has been the last 15 years, especially at the page level links are highly correlated with ranking. And what we generally say is links won't get, get you to the top position, but they'll get you to page two, bottom of page one. And then it's the other signals that you need. It's the user experience signals that you need to get to the top, but you need those links to get to be, even be in contention. So in some sense, like backlinks to a given page or domain kind of like get you in the running to run the race. Yeah, exactly. And earlier, you know, back in when I was starting in SEO, the, the idea was how do we create content that attracts links? And I think there's less emphasis on that today, but I wish more people were doing it. When you create these pages, every page, if you can find a way to attract links to it naturally, whether it's because it has stats, uh, you know, or you know, some sort of awesome resource in it. That's where the magic of SEO happens. Those links that constantly attract pages. That's my favorite thing to do because then I don't have to go out and look for links. And you recently made some predictions for 2024. Uh, you published a tweet, which uh, we will include in the show notes, where you highlight your top five SEO predictions for the year that is ahead. And I fully realized that this tweet was intended to be satire, but I actually thought a few of these predictions were a little interesting and I wanted to talk about them. The first is that in one of your predictions, you wrote, to adapt to the ever-changing needs, Google needs to drop authority and add flexibility as a ranking factor. Publishers are encouraged to add feet to their web pages. Uh, but in all seriousness, what do you make of EAT? How important is EAT? And is that something we should actively be trying to build? Or does it just happen naturally for the best people and the best websites? Yeah, no. So that's a great question. So that, that's the funny thing, because Going back to the quality rater, that's all quality raters do is, uh, you know, evaluate eat and you, you know, you're, you look at the query, how important is this query financially or, you know, medically? And then there's sort of this eat standard. If you're looking at a series of search results where someone's going to invest, you know, uh, several hundred dollars on, you know, a, a set of speakers or something like that, a new TV, you, you might want some high eat for that query. And I might be a little biased because again, as a quality rater, this is, this is all I do, but I, I think it's a, a real thing. And I think Google is taking 
all this data that quality raters put in and they're looking at links and everything else like that. And they're using that to train their machine learning algorithms. And you, when that happens, I think you generally see sites with higher EAT uh, ranking higher. And let me step back for a second. When I'm looking at sites and I'm, I'm rating them or, or whatever, I, I tr I'm trying to figure out, does this site know what it's talking about? Is it trustworthy? Here's a very tiny example. My, I looked at my own site, Zippy, and I have all these SEO articles. And I'm just like, all right, if, if a quality rater is looking at my site or a user is looking at my site, can they understand that this is an SEO site? And I had to take an honest look and say, no, they, they don't. I, I have this RCO article, but there's nothing that says, that shows my expertise. So I went through, we updated our logo that, to say Zippy SEO. I changed all my navigation links from like blog to SEO research. Uh, I put in, you know, author bio, bios where, you know, I talk about myself and all my experience. And it was after this time we saw, we saw rankings increase and user engagement metrics seem to be more engaged. I can't say that it's a definite causal relationship, but just trying to demonstrate the eat on the page and show people that, you know, we're an expert. And sorry, I, I rambled on for five minutes there. I'm, I'm going to shut up now. No, it's totally fine because I did what I, I often do. And I ask you four questions all at once. And I, I saw a recent like statement from Google. I think it was from Danny Sullivan that like adding authors to your pages is not a direct ranking factor. But, but I was at the Brighton SEO conference in San Diego and Danny said something really interesting. He said that like adding authors to your pages isn't a direct ranking factor, but it is a factor that Google's algorithms could try to correlate off to decide if like this is a characteristic of what would be a good web page or a good website broadly. And so that got me thinking that like, okay, adding like an author or an author bio to my site, it's not going to move the needle today for that specific page. But like when Google's quality raters or Google's algorithms as a whole are trying to correlate my site to what might be a great site, those those factors could be important. Am I kind of thinking about this the right way? Yeah, absolutely. And Danny, it's absolutely correct. Those aren't direct ranking factors. And But think about it's everything is so loose and based on machine learning. So the, the quality rater is looking at your site and they're applying the, the quality rater guidelines and they're, you know, they're scoring everything. If you're providing a good experience for them, one of the things in the quality rater guidelines is, is there an adequate amount of information provided by the website? Who created the content? Uh, do they seem like they're an expert? And, you know, that doesn't mean putting an author box and checking a box. That means actually communicating your expertise. And if you can do that, if you can accomplish that with an author box and it's quality and you're convincing people it's a high quality site, that may correlate with all those machine learning signals. So when the, the bot comes and looks at your site, like, oh, this looks like other sites that communicate authority. So we're going to rank it higher. Yeah. And it feels like we could do that within the articles or the, the pages themselves. And I always think about like, you know, Backlinko. And whenever I was reading a Backlinko article, and I know you don't love all of the content on Backlinko, but just one article. I love Brian. I, I love the site. There's just one article I don't like. Yes. The, the ranking factors one. I saw you tweet about that recently. It is forever going to rank number one for that keyword. But what I've always enjoyed about Backlinko is I felt like I was having a conversation with Brian like in that article, like anybody could write an article about guest posting, but like in Brian's article, it felt like Brian was telling me about how he guest posted. And so 
I would bet that like Google's algorithms can also like see into those pages themselves. Um, you know, of course you could have an author bio, but they can probably understand like those signals within the the contents of a page too. Would you say that that might be accurate? Yeah, absolutely. A- uh, contents of the page. I'm a big fan, and I alluded this a little earlier. I'm a big fan of demonstrating expertise in your in your header, in your navigation, and your footer, your your footer links. You know. Most sites have an about page. Maybe they'll have a privacy page, an affiliate disclosure. I love it when I see about, team, press, careers, contact us, you know, phone number on every page, you know, in the news, blah, 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 you know, our our research, things like that, that says you're a real company or that you do real things. It's, you know, maybe for some affiliate marketers, these pages are a little harder to create. But I love it when I see it because it it demonstrates authority. And it's not always perfect, though. I was on a website in the gardening space last week. The site had like no eat. Like it didn't have an about page. The only like sub page it had in a footer was like an advertiser disclosure where they had like the name of the LLC that owns the property. But otherwise, I have no idea who owns this company, like who these people are. I don't know any of the authors on the site, but the site was still ranking really well. And so like, they've got no eat, like the extreme of no eat, but still ranking really well. What do we make of a situation like that? Well, they're doing something right. So I would look at their reputation. I would look at their backlinks and I would ask you, you know, was the information good? Was it a good site? Was it good content? And if none of those things are true, I'm saying they're buying a lot of good links. I guess I did learn if I've been overwatering my plant. So. I, I guess I guess it, and the content served my intent at that moment in time. Yeah, I, our users coming to the site and going, "Yeah, I got my answer. This is this seems like legitimate content." So sometimes you can violate the rules. So going back to your predictions, uh, you had another prediction that I thought was quite interesting. It was prediction number four. You said that Google will replace the helpful content update with the random content of the week. How do you like them, Apple's update? <laughs> And so my question here is, is Google going to roll back the full content update? That's funny. Uh, I, I like that, by the way. You tweeted it. I just repeated it. Yeah, pat on the back. How do you like them apples? And I think it was just talking about like Google's, sometimes Google results seem so random right now. Like they're just trying to throw stuff against the wall and see what works. But this is what I will say. In the latest edition of the quality rater guidelines that they put out like uh, two months ago now, maybe three, there's a section in there. There's some comments about previously big brands sort of got a little bit of a pass with needs met rating, Uh, meaning if you're a big brand, even if your page doesn't quite meet the search query, they were going to get maybe a higher score because people trusted them. And they rolled back some of that language. And I think some of that language erases the advantage of big brands had escaping the helpful content update. Because what a lot of people noticed, helpful content updates seem to hit the medium and smaller sites a lot harder than the big sites. Mm-hmm. So what I think is going to happen probably within three months, maybe don't don't hold me to that. We will see a roll. We'll see a rollback of that where the helpful content update is applied much more evenly across big sites. And some of the lower sites that got hit are going to see a recovery. Not huge, but a small prediction. So now's the time to be buying beaten up affiliate sites. Yeah, yeah. Sites that, sites that got hit, but just barely by the HCU update. Yeah. And I do want to talk about internal linking. We talk about internal linking on this podcast every other week. It's one of my favorite topics. But I want to ask you, like, how important is internal linking? Is it something we should be spending time on? Yeah, I I think internal linking is hugely important. It's something uh, we've run some studies on. 
I, I'm sure you've read a study we did a couple of years ago on correlation between internal linking and rankings. And yep. you know, what, just, to, just to summarize to your listeners, what we found is, yes, there was a correlation between internal linking and rankings, but it only went up to about 20 internal links. And then the numbers started to dive bomb. And some of that was because of navigation links. And you know, when you have a link in your navigation, it links to every site on your page. But what blew us away was the correlation between anchor text variety. Uh, it wasn't the number of internal links, it was the variety of links. So that every page used different keywords to link to the same page. And the more variety you have, we never found the end of the chart. Uh, the data got so sparse, it just kept going up and up and up like Mount Everest. The number of variety of links was such an important factor. And it's still my secret strategy that I, so many people don't put the time in because they think, oh, I, 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 I added five links to this post, I'm done. You know, uh, no need to add any more, but just keep adding variety and variety and variety. In terms of anchor text and placements of those internal links? Yeah, absolutely. And I kind of led you to this question uh, because we had a recent guest on the podcast, Jeremy, who's the head of SEO at ClickUp. And he actually mentioned you specifically and this internal linking study that you put out in 2022. It's a fantastic resource and we're gonna include it in the show notes. And so I just, I wanna make sure that I fully understand this. So we should actively be trying to change our internal link anchors because you know, I know I've always used like, uh, you know, exact match anchors or not always, but I often find myself using exact match anchors. That's maybe not something we should be doing all of the time. Yeah, I, I never use exact match anchors if I can. I always de-optimize them a little bit, uh, adding, you know, extra. If the exact match is two words, I'll add a word at the beginning and a word at the end, and I'll mix them up every single time. I, I think what Google does, uh, I think most SEOs understand the concept of canonicalization. If Google sees two two exact pages, they'll canonicalize them into one and, and combine their signals. I think Google might be canonicalizing anchor text. And that's that's why if you you know if you're Home Depot and you have a link in your header that says, you know, power tools, Google's not going to look at a million power tool links and say, oh, they, they have a million links that say power tools. They must be really about, no, they have one link that says power tools. And so I think that's what happens, you know, when you link with the same anchor text in your body and you use the, the same linking text every time, you're still going to get page rank from that link. You're losing some of that anchor text because I think Google is canonicalizing those, those anchor text uh, signals to each other. Does it ever make sense to use naked anchors on internal links? You know, in our, in our study, we found a correlation between naked anchors and ranking. So sites, uh, internal links that, you know, had naked anchors uh, or naked naked URLs did rank higher. I, I think that just plays into the variety. We didn't study this exactly, but there's this idea of over-optimization of anchor text where you're just linking the same way every single time. And it seems to hit lower authority sites harder. And using the naked URLs is a way to, you know, diversify your anchor text. I think there's other ways I would, I don't think you need to use naked anchors. I think you just need to use a greater variety all the time. Yeah. And so besides diversity, would you say like that greater variety can actually like help shape the keywords that your page might be ranking for? Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Using synonyms, uh, using close match, uh, using those keywords that you might find in Google search console that aren't your main money keywords, but you know, they're sort of related. Yeah. Something like that. Is there an optimal number of internal links we should try to build to a page? All of them, all of them. But there, 
it's not a perfect strategy. You don't, I don't think you can just add, you know, 100 links to every page from every page. I am running an experiment right now on a small affiliate site where we're linking to every money. We just added one of those mega footers when we're linking to every important page from the mega footer. And I would love to tell you rankings just shot up, but they've been like a roller coaster ever since because I think Google's trying to figure it out. You know, it messes with your your page rank graph. I would suggest to people find the pages you want to target, your money pages, and start with those and just add links to those from various pages of your site. If you go to that study, uh, I listed some uh, tools at the bottom of the page that I, that I think help with that. I do want to ask you about your actual predictions for 2024, because I'm sure you've got some actual predictions, uh, but I just want one of them. What's like your number one prediction for 2024 in SEO? Number one prediction is the AI, I'm going to say shit show that's about to happen. We got we got 5% of it in 2023, but it's going to be wild in 2024 with publishers publishing millions of AI generated content, it ranking and Google not knowing what to do with this has been so much fun. I, uh, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. I could probably talk to you for like another two hours. So we'd love to have you back at some point. But if it's okay with you, I've got like a few rapid fire questions I want to ask. Absolutely. What's the biggest mistake that SEOs are making right now? Doing what's easy instead of doing what doesn't scale. Core web vitals. Do they matter? No. Title tags. Are they important? If they match the H1, yes. Buying backlinks. Is that something we should still be doing? Yeah, it doesn't seem to hurt anybody. Please buy good backlinks. Somebody needs to put that on a t-shirt. As a follow-up to that, have you seen any sites get like manually penalized due to backlinks lately? It feels like it's kind of been relatively quiet for the last couple of years. No, I, I haven't. I have seen zero clients get penalized. Uh, I've had some clients come to me with list of links they bought and they are terrible. I mean, just terrible. And I'm like... <laughs> Don't do this. Uh, but there, there seems to be no penalty. Even if we disavow them, nothing happens. Should we be still disavowing anything? I think uh, if you have a manual penalty or if you have something that just stinks to high hell, I would possibly disavow it because Google's probably ignoring it anyway. But uh, I haven't seen the disavow work in a while. Well, Cyrus, this has been so much fun. Uh, we're going to include in the show notes a link to the internal linking report uh, as well as a few of the tweets that we mentioned. Uh, and to your homepage, so you've built at least one backlink today. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the Optimized Podcast. This week's episode of the Optimized Podcast is brought to you by Positional. You probably know by now that my name is Nate, and I'm one of the co-founders of Positional. And we've built what I think is a pretty awesome tool set for content marketing and SEO teams. We've got a few features you'd expect, like tools for keyword research and keyword tracking, but we've also got a few tools that you've maybe never seen before. For example, internals for internal linking and content analytics, which is kind of like a heat mapping tool, but for a content team. It helps give you insight into where in your pages you might want to come back and improve. We've got about eight tools, and we'd love for you to check them all out at positional.com.